You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. Mr. Buck, welcome to the big time. Yeah, right? <laughs> you notice my hat today? Yeah, dude. I'm stoked. On it. I've seen that pop up in your social media a couple times, too. <laughs> I'm watching. <laughs> so what exactly is Pathfinder? Is this trail building? Is that you? That's your company? Yes, that's... Uh... That's that's the trail building company. Is it your company or are you a part of it? Um, no, it's my company straight up. Yeah, we're a, a sole cool. owned business. Yeah, yeah, it's been an interesting adventure. <laughs> You're now the second person I know that does some sort of trail building. And the first was Ryan Atkins. Yeah, I heard that podcast. That's um, that's pretty rad, honestly. I've never, I don't know his company. I tried looking him up after I heard that and I couldn't find anything about it. <laughs> so. I, th- I think he worked for somebody else, I believe, trail building, didn't he? No, I think he was an engineer at the time and he trail built on the side and just did, he took little contract work, I think. And he'd, he'd just turn it on and turn it off as needed. And I think it's been off for a while. Uh, that's because uh, Adam here is stealing all the business. <laughs> yeah, right. I hope so. <laughs> But this is your main, right? This isn't your side job. This is your main occupation. Yeah, this is full time year round for me. Uh, full time would be an understatement, Adam. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't work maybe like four months out of the year, so um, we're on the tail end of the season. So starting like mid November, I don't work out in the. Well, I work, but not not out like in the field building trails until probably like March or April or something. Um, so it's playtime now. It's just about summertime for me. <laughs> yeah. How many hours a week do you think you've been working? Because, okay, so Adam is an athlete of mine. We've been working together for how long, Adam? Maybe like six months? Yeah, something like that. Maybe a little bit more than that. Yeah. Eight months or so. But yeah. um, So I'm I'm pretty versed in like the nuances of your day-to-day. Um, how much are you working right now, like on a week, like a weekly hours scale, building trails? Oh, uh, right now, I think I'm on like seven, between seven tens and seven twelves. So 70 to, is that 70 to 80 hours a week or something like that? No days off. No days off right now, just because with winter coming, we got to get projects wrapped up. So, um, like today, I'm in Dubuque working on a project for John Deere, and we're headed. I'm headed up to the Twin Cities to pick up a bunch of equipment, and I'll be back down here tomorrow. Um, so this is like this is my day off, you know, driving eight hours. <laughs> yeah, so. What What does a ten or a twelve hour workday look like? Are you on site on feet most of that time? Absolutely. Yeah. We start at, I, I, I wake up at five 30 every day and do paperwork until like six 30, which is like running payroll contracts, um, emails, and then get on, get on site between six 30 and seven, fuel all the machines, um, get a plan for the day. And I've got 12 employees. And so get, get all the fellas assigned to everything. And then we, then we kick it out in the field. We take a 30 minute lunch. Otherwise we're, we work until six or six 30 every night. And so it's oh. either you're in an excavator building trails, which you're off your feet, but you're getting bounced around so much that's still, it's a still pretty taxing thing. Or you're holding a rake or a cloud, like a tool, and you're finishing behind the equipment. So it's um, it's full on. You're on your feet for probably 11, 11 and a half hours every day. 
All right, so there's pieces falling into place now. You were the one Kirk was talking about when he gave an example of matching training stress to lifestyle stress, where you maybe are doing 40 yeah. miles per week worth of job stress on top of training. Yeah, absolutely. I, Bracken knows this, but I've been trying to interview you for a while. How long have I been mentioning we need to interview Adam for, Bracken? How long would you say? Since spring. <laughs> Since spring, I've been trying to get you on the damn podcast, and it's finally happening today. But I'm glad to have you. Um, just to so just to introduce you a little bit. So you live in your home base is the Twin Cities right now. You are a professional yeah. trail builder. And also a pretty accomplished athlete who I know we say this a lot on this podcast, but somebody who like if you choose to pursue Spartan racing or trail racing on some sort of scene, you are going to do very well and people will know who you are. So there's a lot of levels to who, to who you are, in my opinion. I'm biased because I'm your coach, but I've also run hill repeats with you. And one of those days you did kick my ass. So obviously there's some talent there. That, this, is, this is unheard of. I've never seen Kirk get beat in a workout. There are people who have beat him in a race, but... Kirk is really tough to take down in a workout. So I don't care what was going on with him that day. The fact that you took his scalp instantly elevates you to a, to rarefied air. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I think I took the crown on the hill. <laughs> and then you, yeah, you took one of my crowns too, you jerk. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll save my excuses. I have them, but I'll save them. <laughs> He's got a good excuse. In my opinion, he's got a legitimate excuse. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but point being, so you're, you're, you're a good runner as well. And so the way I think the listeners are going to relate to you in a lot of ways, Adam, is one, like you are, we talk to a lot of busy people on this podcast who are, have families or jobs, and they're also athletes. I don't know a single person busier than you. And not only do I not know a single person busier than you who's trying to train, um, but your job is also physical as well. So there's a lot of elements that you have going on that I just think is really important for like people to hear like how you can still make it work. And then we also, you know, I feel like your line of work doesn't get the credit it deserves. We take these trails that we go out and use and take for granted every day as trail runners. And you're the guy out there from start to finish designing trails, where they go, how they're laid out, how they're made. Like this shit doesn't happen if it's not for you, right? I mean, I'm not exaggerating here. A absolutely. I think like what what we tell most people is trails don't build themselves, right? And I just don't think um, most people don't recognize that. I think with the pandemic, the crazy thing is, is the rush on trails and the outdoors has been absolutely insane. And so it's kind of cool to see when we're building facilities that you can use, whether it's, you know, it doesn't really matter what's going on. You can still be outside, you know, um, but think that's probably like the coolest part of it right now anyway generally i know the people that we're interviewing we've probably only had one maybe two people that i don't know personally and have a relationship in in normal life and i'm always a bit hesitant to bring someone on that i don't know because then that requires research to be done or or or, or potentially opening up a can of worms that i shouldn't have or anything like that but i was psyched about this one because when we've talked with steve hammond or people like that who course design it always brings up these really interesting points of view and topics that the racing side never, ever contemplates. And then we get a lot of feedback. Like, that was really cool to see the other side. And so now the trail building side is fascinating to me because everywhere I travel, I just pull up all trails or the mountain bike project. And I find this trail system and I go and I kind of take for granted that this isn't just an animal path. You know, this isn't a game path that just got made through nature. Someone actually came out here in the middle of nowhere and built it all out. And so I was psyched to hear about 
how this whole process works, but I didn't know you were an athlete. I, yeah. I've seen your name like in the Minnesota Spartan race results, but you know, I didn't realize you had a running background as well, which is awesome now that we, we get to hit both sides today of, of this interview. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think um, what you'll find with most trail builders, they're pretty much every trail builder is also a trail user. And so they're either accomplished trail runners or accomplished. Um, we've got some mountaineers on our staff. We have some real accomplished mountain bikers. It's pretty much like you're not going to do this job unless you enjoy being outside because it's the workload is ridiculous. I mean, there's no, even if you're a guy that only works 40 hours a week trail building, it's still the load is so much more than normal that you, you really have to be passionate about being outside. I mean, there's no, <laughs> it's not an easy day, you know? You're sun up to sundown and sometimes before and after the sun's out, aren't you? Absolutely. Right now we are for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want, I want the listeners to hear. Um, so I want to just touch on your trail building and then I want the listener to get to know you. And then I really want to dive into your trail building and, and the nuances and the intricacies of it all. Um, but just so, so they have an idea, can you, can you tell us some of the trails you've built and worked on and their locations, just some of them. So people understand like the scope of what you're doing. Yeah, totally. Um, so we're, we're based in Egan, Minnesota, which is one of the suburbs. Um, we've worked on most of the major metro trails. So we've done work in Battle Creek, Lebanon Hills. Um, I was involved with Murphy Hanran, hmm. working on a project in Minnetonka, um, done work up in Monticello, Cuyuna Rec area, which is up near Brainerd. Um, we just got done building a trail system in Grand Rapids. We're working on one at Giants Ridge, which is up near Bawabic, Minnesota. We've worked on the Duluth Traverse. Um, right now, we're down in Dubuque, Iowa, working on um, a park that John Deere donated to the community. Um, we've done work in Des Moines, done work in Utah, California, Wyoming, Arkansas, mm -hmm. Chicago, so it's Illinois. We've done some work in Wisconsin, Mantwish Waters area. Um, I think that's about all of them that I can think of. Yeah. That's legit. You've been, you've taken all your equipment cross country. You've built single track. You've built uh, flat, more groomed trails. You've been mountain building trails. You've been flat trails. Yeah. You've been through the swamps, through the woods, through everything. Yeah. So we, we specialize in um, natural surface trails. Um, probably more on like the mountain bike side of things, but we've worked on the Continental Divide, which is, you know, from the Canadian border to the Mexican border. Um, and that's hiking and biking for a good chunk of it. Um, we've done horse trails. We've done just walking paths, um, but it's all natural surface. So we don't do any paved trails. We don't do like improved surface, like gravel trails, really. Um, mostly everything from remote location to the real big prevailing thing right now is like bike parks and bicycle playgrounds, which are kind of like community-based skills building opportunities for newer riders all the way up to like advanced expert riders. Um, we'll do stonework. Um, if you like, if you check out Pathfinder trails, our Instagram, and we post lots of photos of our work there. And so like real intricate stonework or woodwork um, for like bridges and boardwalks and things. Um, yeah. That's kind of sums up a good chunk of it. That's enough. <laughs> say, yeah. what, what are the chances that, what are the chances, I know I've already run on some of the trails that you've, you've, you've built, but um, what are the chances that some of our listeners have used a trail that you've made? Do you think that there's a good chance that people listening right now have stepped foot on trails that you've made? 
Absolutely. I think if uh, if you're in the Twin Cities, you've you've probably run on something that we either help design or we help build. Like in like uh, I think a easy one for a lot of people like Lebanon Hills, Jensen Lake. Um, I helped install all the boardwalks on that trail network. So if your your feet are staying dry, we probably had something to do with that. You are based on the Midwest, but you've headed out to Utah, California, Nevada, that range. Is are those same type of projects here, or is this a different sort of clientele out there? Um, different clientele out there. It's a lot of the work out there is working for the Bureau of Land Management. Um, and it's just like different parts of the country have different terrain. So it's more like working out in the desert and, um, like high, high Alpine, high mountain kind of stuff. Um, whereas working here, it's a little bit, I don't want to call it boring because the trails in the Midwest are super fun, but everyone likes being in the mountains, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, the work out there is a little bit more remote. If, if I were a private client, let's say I owned a couple hundred acres and I want you to to build a trail. What sort of investment is that looking like for me to get, let's say, a, a, a 5K trail or a 10K trail that's technical and windy single track on my on my property? Yeah. So typically, um, if it's just for running, you're probably looking at about four bucks a foot to five bucks a foot, and so you'd be looking at like 25 grand a mile. Huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so you know, let me know. We're available. Twenty-five grand a mile. That's probably your average cost on trail across the country. Is probably between twenty, twenty, twenty-five, and thirty thousand dollars a mile. I think the difference, the difference between doing it yourself and working with a professional, is there is a certain amount of like, um, there's like a certain amount of artistic value to putting trails in and getting them to like be on the land correctly. Yeah. Um, and so I think. And we work with lots of volunteer groups and the the struggle is the pe- people that do it more are so efficient that the value you get from them is so different from someone trying to do it themselves. We definitely go to a lot of products where it's like, well, hey, I run in a skid steer and smash trail in for six miles and there's problems with the trail everywhere, you know. Okay. So I think, I mean, if you can afford the equipment, you can do it for as cheap as that if you don't want to pay for the time. So, so let's say a one mile trail then on my property, one mile. Okay. How long would it take you to get it done versus me? Um, it would take us 10 days because you're, you're, you're in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Yeah, it'd take about 10 days in that type of terrain probably, 10 or 12 days. It'd probably take you twice that, I would imagine, unless you are unless you know how to run equipment. You know? <laughs> I can run YouTube. <laughs> yeah, right. That's how Bracken learns everything is just watching. That's how he started this podcast and how he does the editing now is he just watches YouTube and then yeah. copies, copies well, Hey, just make sure you put the seatbelt on, you know? Doubling the time is probably generous. So time is money, Bracken. That's just too expensive to afford. Yeah. So, yeah. so and then, then I guess the thing people don't think about, let's say you're doing it yourself, is you go through lowlands or washout areas and you have to have the foresight to know like, hey, this area of the trail could potentially be damaged by this or that. So you need to build trails around or accordingly so that it stays there for a long time. So Brackenstein would build his trail and then after winter season and the snow melts, he's gonna have a mess on his hands. Yeah. Whereas your trail is gonna be ready to go. Is that right? Exactly, it'll be nice and dry, ready to go. I think like, I think what a lot of people don't necessarily understand trail building, like a huge part of it is environmental sustainability, right? Like we love, everyone loves to be in the woods and experience the woods. So part of it's like, let's not destroy the woods while we're trying to build the trail. So um, a lot of that, you see with like homebrew trails is people don't realize that you have to take into account drainage that could maybe be a mile away and you have to account for when that crosses your trail. And, um, and that depends on the usability of the trail, right? If it's wet, 
you're never going to use the trail. So like smart trail design takes all that into account from the get go. And I think that's where you won't see a lot of big homebrew trail networks just because it takes, I mean, a lot of our trail projects take three years before dirt's moved. You know, you're out there designing, doing flag lines, looking at maps, um, working with stakeholders and stuff. And so it's just like a, the, the process is much more involved than I think people initially realize. Yeah, it, because you would, as a runner, I'll drive past a place or I'll go for a hike with my family a place or I'll, I'll visit someone's property who's got land and I think, oh yeah, I could take the natural game trails, widen it out and just you visually take the yeah. lay of the land and I could work out a one mile trail on this. And that's that's just not it, is it? Um, no, well, you know, like if you look at a place like, have you ever run Theo Worth in no. Minneapolis? He is not, no. Or maybe even Afton Alps. Yes. There's some there's some game trails there that people run, and they're like they're like knee deep ruts because people are running them. I mean, game trails will never get that crazy, you know. That's like that's the difference between people involvement and nature. So, and I think once a particle of dirt has moved downhill, it is not going to get back uphill. And so that's like when you start looking at trail design, it's taking into the account like the hydrology of places and the types of plants and the number of people that are going to be used on it. And it's um, a lot more involved than I think people think you, you could certainly on your private land. I mean, if what you have is deer trails to run, go for it. If it's you and like three or four other people, that's not enough people to change anything. But if it's, if it's the city of Minneapolis and steel worth, and there's 40,000 passes on a chunk of trail every day, well then you, you can't just use a deer trail. I mean, that, it's going to blow up the entire chunk of woods, you know, mm-hmm. like real simple examples is if you're on, like if you're in a state park and you see a puddle and the trail coming into it is 18 inches wide and the, and the puddle is like 30 feet wide and the trail going out of it is 18 inches wide. That's human interaction. That's, that's not the water doing that. That's people going around the water. And so that's, that's the stuff that is a trail that you have to take all that kind of stuff into account, you know? And so it's just, um, building your own trail you're gonna have some of those problems let me know i'd be happy to help you you know <laughs> that's interesting so do you bring in phil do you do all that or do you try to make it so that you don't have to add much additional you use the land to its best um we depends on the trail type we use the land to its best but that being said we are one of our big products this year we've moved twelve thousand cubic yards of material so i mean that's like moving your entire house worth of dirt or probably a couple, a couple of your houses worth of dirt. So it's, um, it really depends on the trail type that we're working on. Um, typically for like a hiking trail or running trail, we don't import material. You use stuff off the trail edge or the hill, or when you cut the bench in, you get a bunch of dirt from that and you can utilize that for things too. Mm. We're, we're in this, you know what, we're going to save getting to know you. I think I'm just got so many questions and I'm super interested. So we're going to, we're going to reverse order this thing. I think Is that okay, cool? cool. Yeah. I just want to, I want to go down this right now. I'm actually really interested in this. Because I spend a decent amount of time of my life running trails and I've run them on multiple continents in every ecosystem imaginable. Yeah. You know, from rainforest in Costa Rica and Hawaii to um, the Pyrenees, the Rocky mountains, like, the Midwest, East, West Coast. I've, I've run it all. Appalachian mm-hmm. Trail, all these things I've been on. And I always wonder, how can you possibly create trail out of these ecosystems? You know, rainforest trails blow my mind. Rocky mm-hmm. Mountain trails blow my mind. So I I, I don't know, maybe, maybe the audience, maybe I'm over kicking our coverage. But to me, <laughs> I kind of imagine that anyone who runs trails is fascinated by how you can create them in these different places. 
even Nevada versus the Midwest, like it's that is an entirely different structure. Well, yeah. we all think. I mean, just speaking from like ignorance, you think it is much easier than it really is. You assume game trails have been widened and used and you know mm -hmm. packed down. You assume that it was just an easy route found through the woods with natural openings and you know funnels built in, and it's just not the case. So like. I just, I almost feel silly for how much you take it for granted. And we haven't even gotten to the meat and potatoes of it yet. And I already feel like a little bit overwhelmed with like yeah. how much is involved. There was this moment that would always hit me when we lived in Colorado, where I'd be running off somewhere and I would think, I am so far from civilization. I might be the only person that's ever been out here. And I'd come around the corner and there's like a six step of... Of, of hand hewn rock steps. Yep. I'm like, okay, so someone brought heavy machinery out here already. <laughs> like, no matter where I've run, someone has gotten machinery out there and built a trail into the side of them, you know, that step you're talking about, that yeah. whatever it is that, that rings a cliff, how you get, how you get, what do you, it was a mini backhoe or mini excavator that can put this four, four foot wide track in the side of a mountain. It blows my mind. I think, like, the thing to remember if you're in the national forest, they don't allow uh, mechanized equipment. So that's actually all hand-built trail. So if you're seeing if you're seeing stacked stone retaining walls in like a national park, and it's like uh, like if you're in like Bryce Canyon has some absolutely gorgeous like stacked retaining walls, or if you're in Zion National Park, there's retaining walls, or um, like in the Midwest, Superior Hiking Trail, um, mm -hmm. all that bluestone and stuff, that's hand-cut rock. So they're that's they're not allowed to use mechanized equipment. So you're oh my God. maybe that's changing somewhat but even the work we've done out in wyoming we worked up to the wilderness boundary we don't work in the wilderness boundary because i mean doing hand work like that we can do it but it's so expensive that you, most people can't afford it because it's the time thing you know and so when you're like in colorado springs you're probably seeing stuff that a lot of that's probably done by hand i know there's i know two or three companies that are working there right now and they're using equipment but Mechanized equipment and trail building is a relatively new thing as if you look at the history of trails, right? Mechanized equipment's probably only been around for 15 years or something. And so before that, it's mostly done by hand. Um, yeah. Is there, is there a reason for that? It's just to minimize damage to the, to the land itself? Or what is the reason for that in like a park system? Um, I, well, I think with the wil like wilderness classification in the United States, it means they don't allow snowmobiles, four wheelers, trucks, and I think it's just adhering to the policy that hey, this is this is wilderness. It will be treated like wilderness. So like if if you're in if you're in like the Wind Rivers and they need to build a trail across a rock face, they do it's all surface blasting. So that that blasting material gets brought in on horseback. I mean they they don't even take helicopters in the wilderness, you know. So it's it's um you can set off dynamite but you can't take a quad <laughs> yeah right exactly yeah totally and so it's just um it just kind of depends it de it really depends i think the i think to become a commercial industry that we trailers had to start using mechanized equipment i mean like and i think the more science got brought into the mix and it's not just like an art form the more of like well hey if we move this much material the trail becomes more sustainable it'll last longer and so we use mini track hose, mini excavators. Um, we have we have a few of them. Everything from one that's thirty inches wide to one that's eight feet wide. And so you have a thirty inch wide excavator. Yeah, I do. Yep. Is it like a ride behind mower type deal? <laughs> Kinda. They're super <laughs> sketchy. It only weighs, I think, like eleven hundred pounds. A couple guys can flip it over. It's a. It, they use it for demolition. It can fit through doorways. 
I've seen a lot of this equipment. Adam and I would meet for runs at Afton Alps. And this guy's such a hustler that we would meet on a Saturday morning to do a trail run. And he'd have a 20-foot trailer behind his truck full of excavation equipment. Because right from the trail run, he's going to another trailhead to build shit. So I've seen some of your equipment. I know the hustle you're you're living. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's, imp- it's impressive. In fact, that's where you gave me this sweet Pathfinder hat I'm wearing today. Um, I, let's let's start at the beginning with this, okay? Um, where does a project get off the off the ground or get started? And how do you hear about it? How do you like? How does that process get going? You said it can take up to three years before ground's even broken. Yeah, and that really depends on the area you're in. Um, like we're working on a project right now that's been through two lawsuits. So, I mean, pe- people get extremely passionate about green space in urban areas, right? Um, so it, it kind of depends on the user group. Um, usually it's a bunch of people that enjoy trail running or mountain biking or wh- whatever outdoor use, and they want a place to do it and there's no place for them close. And so it starts there with conversations between the landowners and so out west that's a lot of bureau of land management um they don't really operate here in the midwest so here it's like uh the department of natural resources um the forest service fish and wildlife or local municipalities so whether it's like the city of minneapolis wants to put in a bike trail or the city of minnetonka or city of dubuque or whatever um and we typically sit down and we talk about property lines and boundaries and we begin the conversation of what type of trails do you want? Do you want multi-use trails? Do you want a running trail? Do you want a bike trail? What type do you want? Do you want technical trails? Do you want beginner trails? Do you want something that's optimized for a race course? Do you want something that's, you know, the neighbor lady can take her stroller on it? Or do you want the gnarliest mountain bikers in the area to drive here to use them? Like what is your, what is your user that you're hoping to draw? And then we pull out, um, topo maps or topo, topographic maps that have all the contour lines and give you your elevation profile of the terrain. And um, we get out string and pencil and paper and you just start drawing a proposed route on it. And from that, you can start to gather distances and where trailheads and potential parking lots, campgrounds, facilities. And you take that back to the city and you meet with them and figure out if that works for them. Then you go to the field and you do the field fit. So we walk the terrain, um, with some tools to measure like measure degrees of angles and things like that to make sure stuff will be sustainable. And then uh, you start hanging flags. Every Everyone does it different, depends on the trail, but every hundred feet you hang a piece of orange tape in the woods and you just start doing that. And if the trail is a mile, it doesn't take much time, but if the trail network is 20 miles, that might take you a couple weeks. Um, mm. And at that point, once all the flags are hung, you walk it with GPS equipment and make a GPS track of the entire network. And then that gets put into an actual digital map. That map gets given to the city and then, it's go, then it has to go through an approval process where all the stakeholders can give their feedback. And then uh, fundraising happens at that point. Oh um, and that's where they're looking for grants or federal funding or private funding. Um, in, the U, in the US, it's typically um, a grant process. So it's typically funded by federal grants. That's not funded by taxpayer dollars? That is funded by taxpayer dollars. It is. Okay, grants would come out of taxpayer dollars. So we've paid for these trails out of our, our taxes. Absolutely. Okay, yep. just making sure. From like from like programs, you know? So like the, mm-hmm. like what, what was that big act that just passed? Like the American Outdoor Act or whatever? Mm-hmm. The American Outdoor Act. Yeah, that'll, 
that'll fun trails. Um, that funds a lot of things, hunting and fishing. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Buying you private property to make it public property. That funds a lot of things. Trail building. Yeah. 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 That was a fantastic thing for trail runners and trail users. for mm-hmm. sure. And so once funding is secured, um, then it goes out to bid. And so people like me go look at the project and put bids in. And then uh, the city or club selects a contractor and then work starts from there. And depending on the size of the project, it might take a couple weeks to put in, or it could take, like we're working on a project in Northern Minnesota that we'll be on it for four years before it's finished. And that's like 80 miles of trails. So it just really depends on the size of the project, but that's like the general, the general lay of how it goes. Hearing all that makes me just astounded that we have any trails anywhere. That process seems like there's so many places it can be stopped. Yes, and that happens. We're um, Minnetonka, Minnesota. We're working on a five-mile trail network. We're just pulling the machines out today, so we're just wrapping it up. But it's been a three-year process with two lawsuits and lots of yelling at city council meetings and (laughs) all kinds of stuff. But ultimately, people want to be able to use trails. So, I mean, they typically go to the direction of, hey, let's, let's put some trails in. And I think, you know, trails pr- protect green space to a degree. If It's not going to get developed if there's people in there using it in a, a good legal manner, you know. You said something earlier. If they want technical versus smooth, bike versus run, raceable. Yeah. Obviously, being trail runners ourselves, the idea of technical trails is enticing. Yeah. But the, the process of making one is intriguing to me. So is it does everything start technical and gets pared down in smoothness, or do you ever have to create technicality in a trail? Yeah, so I think depends on depends on where you are. You know, like in Minnesota, in the lower two thirds of Minnesota, there's just not a lot of rock, right? So there's no real way to make a trail technical without importing material. And so we'll work with local quarries and stuff like that, and we'll get material quarried for us to use in situations like that. Um, if you're on the mountains, I mean, the rocks are there, you just use what's there. Right. And mm-hmm. so I think it depends. I mean, we've definitely worked through cliff bands and we use rock saws and, uh, like micro blasting kits and stuff. And we'll make trails. I mean, you can make trails technical. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the thing for people to remember when you're on trails, someone decided to do what is there. So like, if you get that really cool viewpoint, a trail designer thought that that was a cool place. So we made the trail go there. If you go through rocks and it's super rough, the trail builders were like, well, yeah, these rocks are fucking cool. We should put people through, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the, the technicality of it is determined by the train. I mean, you can't, you can't just make rocks where there's no rocks. So either you have to truck them in or you have to realize that that trail network, you have to figure out a different way to make it more difficult, you know? So, in terms of that, then that opens up this Pandora's box of how do you determine what sort of technicality to use? Do you do you fall into your own bias of what a technical trail should look like, or do you like how do you determine the size of the rocks you're building in, or how yeah. often do you use big versus little, and do you bury the rocks and secure them, or do you leave them on top? Like, what what does that process look like? Yeah, so the rocks, it, <clears throat> bigger rocks don't move, right? So from like a sustainability standpoint. You want to use the biggest rocks that you can make work. And so that's determined by your equipment to some degree. And so bigger excavators can move bigger rocks. And so if you have if you have the equipment to do it, you'll move the biggest rocks you can. Every every contractor will just because it's it's cool to build trails with big rocks. And rock work is it's fun and super technical work. So most trail builders enjoy it. I mean it's super tedious, but it, it is like an artwork. I mean, if you're running a trail and you see some epic rock feature, 
you're always most people stop you're just kind of like damn that's cool you know or i do anyways but i'm a little bit mm-hmm. of a real nerd but um i think um just depends on what's there some some places there is no rock to use so you just don't have a choice it is what it is but like if if you're somewhere like right now we're working in some mine pits and there's massive rocks and so we're using them because it's people like riding on rocks it's cool you know <laughs> it's so there's nothing random or chance about what we're running or biking on if we see it there someone intentionally used it yes absolutely i mean if you're in like a modern trail network it was planned i mean like when we lay out a trail if you find like a big cliff band or something most builders are like well, how can we get onto that that's cool you get good views it's technical trail rock is super sustainable it's never going to go away people can run it when it's muddy snowy raining you know and so that's typically like that's what builders look for is like what's the most interesting terrain you know i mean you don't want to be out in a flat prairie i mean like yeah they're cool to run sometimes but i'd rather be in some super technical and gnarly looking terrain you know mm. when i had a question just backtracking just a hair when you talk about like going and like first you're like e-scouting the property with topographic maps mm-hmm. and then you are deciding like hey this bench or this high point this low point this river system Yep. You're navigating all of that. So you're doing that all like electronically. And then you're going to, so you're already coming up with an idea in your head. Then you yep. go put feet on the ground. What I want to know is, are you always doing that? Because you talked about like a, like a bidding process. Mm-hmm. So sometimes city will hire somebody to plan out the route and then you just go in and do the job. And then sometimes you're actually doing the planning as well. Yeah. Yeah. So there's in the trail industry, there's, um, I don't, there, there's trail designers. And so they're kind of like master planning specialists. So they like, if you go to a national park and there's like a trailhead where it is or a parking lot where it is or a bathroom where it is, that's kind of like a guy that special or a person that specializes in master planning has come in and they've taken into account the entire facility. So like whether it's a state park or a county park, they're looking at access points with roads, other trail networks it might interact with, how many people it can draw. And so it's the whole and they'll do the layout and sometimes we'll be handed that sometimes we'll partner with them and we'll work hand in hand. And sometimes we'll do all of it. What do you prefer? Do you prefer to have your hands on it from day one and all the, all the red tape or do you prefer to just show up and do the job? I would rather just show up and build. If you're working with a good designer, they'll let you adjust the flag lines as you're working. And so like the best thing is if someone else did all that crap of like working with government, you, know, <laughs> you just get to build the trail. Um, but Either or, it, it's fun to be a part of something where it's a blank canvas and you get to put your thought of how you see the land onto it. And when you come out of it and the building's done, you get to see people enjoy it, you know? Mm-hmm. So you get to see it from like, no one's ever been here. No one's seen the the overlooks and the views we're giving or the technical trails or the cool jumps or whatever it is. But then when you're done with construction, they open it to the public. You get to sit there and be like, hell yeah, we, we provided that opportunity, which I think that's probably the coolest part about being a trail builder is seeing people out in the woods, enjoying the woods, you know, like out there enjoying the terrain for instead of sitting, watching TV or playing a video game, they're out doing something, you know, you ever, you ever build a part of a trail and be like, yeah, someone's definitely going to roll their ankle there, but I think it's cool. So I'll put it there. <laughs> and then, you know, somebody's like falling off their mountain bike and broken their wrist or something because of your choice of technicality. You ever think about that at all? Absolutely. You know, what's funny is we've built, I'm not going to say where it is, but we've, we've got some stuff we've built where we got a, some stuff. Yeah. You got to finish that. You got to finish what you were saying. Yeah. We, we've had 
you know, mountain biking is an inherently dangerous sport and people can get in over their head pretty quick, you know? <laughs> and so we've definitely had stuff we've built with like broken femurs and things like that, which is like, you find out after the fact, you're kind of like, cool. So are you asking us to come and change it? You're <laughs> like, what do you, you know, but it's, it's part of it. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a lot of that? Is there an updating process to trails as people find that their usage doesn't fall in line with your vision? Um, I don't think that happens as often. I think what we see is people want trails updated. They, they what you know, it's either become a maintenance issue and because it's used so much that they want old, tra old trail made more sustainable um, or they want more trail added. It's not so much that like, hey, they're not using it right. They're using it this way and we want to add this way, you know, and that, that's more of like a difficulty thing. Usually you put in a bunch of beginner trail and they want expert trail or you put in a bunch of expert trail and people are getting broke off or they can't ride everything in their walk and stuff. So they want beginner trail added, you know? So it's typically stuff like that. I don't think um, a lot of trail companies warranty their stuff for a year. So if there's like a design issue, if someone's, if there's a spot where people are, I mean, you don't hear about hiking and trail running really. It's more like the high speed stuff, like the bikes. If someone's crashing on one particular corner over and over, it's like, Hey, you guys need to come and change as people are fucking getting broke off, you know? It's mm -hmm. like that we haven't had that happen, but it certainly does happen. I mean, it's trails are living, breathing things, you know, they're always, they're always changing depending on weather and use and maintenance. And so, yeah, I mean, trails definitely get changed a lot. My curiosity now leads to this. So you get the job, you're at the site, mm -hmm. obviously all the planning is done. Okay. You're looking at a woods, let's call it undulating terrain. It's thick. There's you, there's nothing there yet. Okay. Like, what are the steps that happen in order to build that trail? Like what, what actually happens now? Like, Cause I imagine for us just listening, like it's gotta be quite daunting to just look at a chunk of woods and say it's dense fo foliage. Yeah. Wh what do you do? What's the process? Yeah. It's not, if you do it enough, it's not super daunting. Um, well, well, you know, we fire up the chainsaws. We usually we walk everything with the crew and um, I use four man crews. So we use two excavators and two hand finishers. And, um, we all get on the same page with the vision and usually the lead machine operator kind of is the one determining, determining that stuff. So that'll be typically the most experienced operator will be on the front end. Um, and um, we'll run through a chainsaws and you clear whether it's brush or trees or whatever. I mean, typically we try to leave the trees. I mean, that's part of being in the woods, right? So you don't want to just like dynamite the forest trying to put a trail in. So we'll walk and wander and kind of determine the final line. And um, first guy gets in there and starts pushing the brush out of the way and cutting in the initial bench. So like, you know, you have a hillside and you kind of notch a bench out. So it's flat, not like angled. Yeah. That's what you mean by a bench, just so pe people probably don't know what a bench is. Yeah, yeah. So like if, you, like if you're driving in the mountains or on a hill, the road is on a bench, like the hill's real steep right next to you. That's probably the easiest way to describe it. So trail construction is very similar. It's just on a smaller scale. And so... The first guy goes in, blows everything open, makes sure a machine can get through, does the initial drain cuts and everything like that. The second machine is kind of like cleaning up from the first machine and doing the final grading on the trail. What, what are you doing with all the trees? Sorry to keep interrupting, but I have so many questions. So Yeah, totally. You just cut down a bunch of brush and trees. You're just cutting them off at the ground and throwing the brush to the side and then digging through the tree stumps and ruts. 
yep. to level it out. So you're kind of brushing over that process, but like that's all yeah. happening by these machines, right? Yeah, totally. So that first machine, if you're like, if you're dumping trees or anything, the hand crew will come in and all that gets cut up and dispersed and naturalized. So that like, so like when you guys are running a trail, you don't see brush piles. You just see this nice trail through the woods, right? That's because these guys that brush, it might get dragged a couple hundred feet away if that's what we need to do to hide it. So it gets dispersed uphill and downhill. Um, if we need to dig into the ground and because we need dirt or something, sometimes the brush will get put into those holes and buried, crushed in and buried. And so like we try to disappear all that so that the trail user experience is as though you're running through an undisturbed forest, you know? And so we dig up all the stumps. Um, if we're going through like real crazy rock, we'll punch holes through the rocks with that first machine so that the second machine can come in and that second machine will pull the rocks back in behind them and add that to the trail tread surface. And so like when you guys were mentioning about how do you determine if a trail's technical or not, that's when that happens is like, do we leave the roots and stumps or do we pull all that out? Or do we, do we throw all these rocks off the trail and make it a smooth surface or do we leave them and bury them and, you know, that stuff will pack out as the trail gets used. And then the hand guys come through and they're doing the final naturalization. So they're raking any clods of dirt down, dragging the brush out, trimming any face slappers as far as like branches and brambles and stuff like that. Um, and then doing the final compaction of the trail tread. So they have little hand packers, kind of like what you see concrete guys use or whatever construction mm -hmm. workers. And we're dragging those things through the woods and that, that's what sets up and they make sure all the drains are positive and water is going to be controlled. And if we put in culverts, they make sure all those are buttoned up and looking nice. And yeah. And so we call it the dirt worm. So, I mean, it's totally raw terrain on the front of the, of the worm and totally finished trail out the back, you know? So dirt worms chugging. <laughs> <laughs> Having spent a lot of time on trails, particularly Midwest and upper U.S. area, yeah. How do you possibly contend with insects throughout these 10 to 12 hour days? Uh, deer flies, <laughs> mosquitoes, biting gnats, yeah. chiggers, things like that. Do you know something the rest of us don't or do you just absorb that? You just absorb it. You get honestly, like I've had, and I know I've talked to Kirk about this some, I've had Lyme's disease. I've, I've dealt with it. I've had to go through the full treatment process for it. Um, I think on my current crew, I've got three guys that have all had to see like specialists for it. Seriously. Absolutely. That, that my opinion on that stuff is people don't take it serious enough. And that's why it's a problem for people. I, I agree. Yeah. I think it's like one of those things where I'm never going to get a tick and it's kind of like, yeah, but if you do, it can be a pretty like serious thing. Um, I think the worst thing for trail builders, honestly, the bugs you can kind of deal with, it's like poison ivy and stuff like that. Cause that, yeah. that can last if you get it on your equipment or like your boots or something that can last for months. And it is like, it is hellacious. So how many times have you had poison ivy or poison oak in your life? Uh, enough times to not ever want it again. <laughs> you know, it's probably like, for me, it's probably like once or twice a summer. N not everyone <laughs> reacts to that stuff the same. I mean, like yeah. some people, like, like if you guys have rid run the Welch Village Spartan race, they have poison ivy all over out there. And mm -hmm. they ran the race course through wild parsnip, which is like, Real bad. That shit will destroy you. That puts people in the hospital, you know? And you guys are doing like belly rolls underneath barbed wire through wild parsnip. You know, I'm just kind of like, damn, you know? And like, and so there's, everyone reacts to it differently. I mean, so some guys on the crew could roll around naked in poison ivy and not affect them at all. And other people, 
if they're even by a saw and it throws some oil on them, they'll have it for the rest of the summer. Mm-hmm. And so oh. people just deal with it. Dawn dish soap, if you're doing poison oak or poison ivy and for the bugs, I prefer not to wear bug dope. I think you just get used to it. Um, there's nothing you can do for horseflies. Horseflies are horseflies. And so sometimes you wear a head net or something, but you just deal with them, you know? They're the worst. Yeah. Especially as a bald man. <laughs> yeah. You wear a hat. You know? I, I have to start wearing a hat for for deer flies and horse flies because they just take chunks out of my scalp. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know You just deal with it. You you don't you don't you don't do anything. You don't wear special things. There's no secret. You just no, no. Um, I think for gnats and stuff, you use vanilla extract works really well. <laughs> um, for mosquitoes, deep woods off or deep woods off or whatever is what most of the guys use. But I don't wear bug dope to be honest with you. I, I don't. I just I don't want to put those chemicals on my skin, so I just don't. So you're just it. always covered in bug bites. Um, I don't think they're that bad. I mean, I don't know. I think you get used to it. You know, I think it's like acclimation. Like if you get used to cold weather, it's the same with bugs. You just, I don't like to put that stuff on my skin really. So my thing is that you just, you learn to acclimate to it just like cold weather or bugs. Do you wear long flowing clothes always to cover? No, I wear, I mean, I wear a, a craft work shirt and jeans. I mean, that's like, that's literally what I wear in a hat. You know? I mean, so yeah, like part of it is like being in a, a mental space where it doesn't bother you. And the second it bothers you, it gets a million times worse. I don't have that off switch. I'm bothered by every insect for my entire life. <laughs> the more you swat at them, the more there will be, you know? Yeah, yeah. it's kind of true. Did you ever, did you ever experiment with thermocells? Yeah, yeah. They work? I think they work, yeah, yeah. I don't, we don't use them because you kind of, I mean, you're always moving. So it's kind of like a little bit, a little bit pointless, but around camp, we have them for sure. Mm. Yeah. I, I swear by thermocells, deep, uh, deep woods off. Um, if there's lots of gnats, vanilla extract works really well. I haven't found anything for horseflies. So if anyone knows anything for horseflies, I'd be, I'd be stoked to hear about that. <laughs> if the deer flies or like the black flies or horseflies are bad, we usually wear head nets. Yeah. I mean, like the physical barrier is always better than anything else, you know? Um, and so like on bad horsefly jobs, you wear like, like I have like a, like a really light long sleeve shirt that I wear and um, like what you might wear fishing or something, you know, and uh, sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't, but like the job has to get done. So you just got to deal with it. You know, <laughs> The guys probably hate me if they hear this, but I'm just kind of like, yeah, get back to work. There's horseflies, you know? <laughs> I mean, there are stories of people getting lost or stranded, like in the boundary waters or places and committing suicide because the bugs drive them to insanity. Oh, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> Dude, you're exaggerating that a little bit. <laughs> I don't no, think I, like- you can't joke or laugh about something like that. That is, Those are real stories that have happened. People have been driven to insanity by <laughs> bugs in survival situations. Pull up the Google. You just, you learn to deal with it, you know, uh, for the, you have to, it's part of being a trail builder. I mean, there's, there's, that's why you get paid what you get paid, you know? I mean, like, it's not going to be a perfect day every day. So you just got to get the work done. Outside of insects, then, do you have any wildlife stories? Working in Cody, Wyoming, we had grizzly bears on our job site. Um, this summer on the Connell Divide Trail, we had black bears eat the cushions off one of our machines. Um, <laughs> as far as trail building, that's probably about it. I mean, every now and then, like in Nevada, we found a handgun. Um, stuff keep like, it? Stuff like that. Yeah, I did. It was all <laughs> right, but, so, you know, it's, hanging in the, it's hanging in the shop for sure. Yeah. Any snakes? Snakes, nothing beyond like grass snakes and stuff like that. Bull snakes, no cougars or anything. No, well, not the kind you find on the trail, anyway. 
Hillbillies. Hillbillies. We've definitely dealt with hillbillies. Um, yeah, like out west, you know, everyone carries guns, everyone carries knives. Every, so like, it's just a different breed of people you deal with out west compared to compared to here in the Midwest. But, Do you carry accordingly in different areas of the country? Um, in Wyoming, we we keep a firearm on the job site for bears because that's that's grizzly country. So like, it's not even worth messing around with. I mean, right? Yeah. So bear spray. And there might be a handgun or two and some backpacks just because like, yeah, no one wants to mess around with a grizzly bear. I mean, no. that's what will actually attack you. A black bear might hang out and chill and they might charge at you, but they're probably not going to, a grizzly bear, a grizzly bear will eat you. you know? So Black bears will think about it real hard. Yeah, yeah, totally. They'll think about it real hard. They'll get about two feet away from you and change their mind is what they'll do. Yeah, you know all about that, yeah. Tricks. Yeah, totally scared the shit out of me. I yeah. still now when I'm in the woods, now I have bear spray with me every time. I'm still like, cause I am a deer hunter and I walk in the woods in the dark in the morning and I walk out of the woods in the dark in the evening. And that's in the back of my mind every single stupid time now. Yeah. You carry the bear spray where you can get at it or is it in your backpack? No, it's right on my, right on my belt loop. Yeah. I carry it. Oh, I practice. I'm like freaking like a uh, Walker, Texas Ranger with that thing. I can bam, I can get them in seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I practice. Yeah, and I accidentally uh punctured a hole in one of mine. I ran it over with my truck, don't ask. And I grabbed it and I it's made out of pepper oil. Yeah, don't get that. You know, pepper bear spray. And I itched my eye after washing my hands. And my eye burned for almost 24 hours. And I had washed my hands after touching that stuff. And mm-hmm. my eye was like I couldn't even open my eye. It watered for like six hours and then itched for the it was awful. So I know that stuff's potent. Yeah. If you're spraying that stuff, make sure you're upwind of it. Yeah, you, you won't even spray the barrier, just spray yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I wanna I wanna know, um I wanna know what what the favorite parts uh like the favorite and best parts of your job and then the worst and most challenging parts of your job are. I, I just think I think when I'm on a trail now, I'm gonna look at every turn differently and I'm gonna look at every like rock differently. And yeah. overview differently. And I also just want to know like those other intricacies because I'm going to think about those too. So what are they? What's great about it? What's terrible about it? Um, well, I came, I took a break from trail building. I came from the corporate world. And so um, my favorite part is being out in the woods, honestly, with no real boss. And I enjoy the creativity. Um, the worst part of it is dealing with like the government side of it. Which sounds weird because you wouldn't think that that'd be part of the trail building, but we don't get trails without dealing with the land managers. And um, I would just like to be left alone and build cool trails, you know? <laughs> so I'm just like, so to me, I love the creativity side and I think that's the best part. And I think the reward is seeing people use the trails that the, that the guys have put in or that we've put in. So I think that's like to see people enjoy the outdoors, I think is awesome. Like if you run or ride a bad trail, you have a bad experience. You're like, well, fuck, I'm not, I don't want to run that trail again. But if you have a good experience, it spurs you on to want to ride or run on other trails, you know? So I think like that's, that's probably like the coolest part is to see people get mm. excited and hyped and be like, yeah, I'm going to start riding bike every day or I'm going to start trail running every day. You know, I think that's, that's the coolest part of it. You know, it spurs like exploration, you know? Mm. Do you feel like you work a thankless job? Uh, um, no, I think. I get stoked on what I do just even if it's just for myself. So I don't really like, I don't think, I don't think trail builders get the recognition they should get, but I think most trail builders are okay with that. Nobody, does anybody say like, Hey man, thank you. Like, thank you. 
I think the people- I mean, is that ever said? Because that's said to me every day. I train a client and they walk out the door and they say, thanks, Kirk. That was great. And I get that instant satisfaction. Right. Whereas like you do your job when nobody's looking. Yeah. And I think like if you do a good job, no one should even realize that it got built by somebody, you know? And so like, I think, um, is it a thankless job? Yeah. But I think that's part of it, you know? Like people enjoy it after we're gone already. I mean, like it's not, except for the few club members and the project manager from the city, our job sites are closed. I mean, it's not open. They're not open to the public till we're totally gone, you know? And so it's like, that's part of it. <laughs> we get thanks, but not like, it's not like there's people screaming from the rooftops, like thank your local trail builder or something. You know? <laughs> Although you get to leave a legacy, whether they know it's yours or not, people will use your life's work for a long time after you're gone. Yeah. And to me, that's, that's, I think that's like the reason I got into trail building is the fact that I know, you know, 70, 80 years from now, we're building trails in a manner that those trails will still be here. And so that's cool. And I don't, I don't care if my name's on them or not at that point. I just think that's really cool. What is your favorite trail to build? Um, location, type, geography. Um, I think type of trail. I love building big jump trails for mountain bikes. Um, just because I think I really enjoy that trail type and it's super fun. And uh, if I love that end of it, and then the other end I love is super remote stuff way out in the wilderness where it's like the challenge is the access, not necessarily the trail. And I think it's cool to create stuff where people can get out into that. So I think we're, we're missing that. Like people don't go outside anymore. You know? Well, they do now because it's the only place they can go. But before all this pandemic stuff, People just didn't go outside. And so I think that remote stuff is cool. When you say remote, like how remote are we talking? I'm saying like out in the wilderness in the mountains remote, like, you know, maybe 10 people run that trail. The reward is the adventure, you know? I think like it's cool to create that access point where, you know, if you go do a 50 mile trail run, some trail builder decided that you were gonna get the experience you got. And so I think that's like, that's cool, yeah. That is cool, actually. That's got to be pretty satisfying. Even thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have any projects um, coming up? I want to shift the conversation shortly, but uh, mm -hmm. any projects coming up that anybody can potentially look forward to that you can talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, Dubuque, Iowa. We're just wrapping up a seven-mile network here. Um, it's called the Proving Grounds Recreation Area. So if you got any listeners in Iowa, just check it out. It's a multi-use bike optimized trail network. So it's like six and a half, seven miles of trail. Um, it's fun. It's fun to run. And if you're if you're a if you're a runner, it it will There's a couple mile section of it that absolutely will be challenging. Quite a bit of climbing and technical rock and real exposed stuff along a bluff. Um, and then there's the Minnetonka Trail Network. Um, we're just wrapping up on that right now. I think with the snow and everything, it's going to take a while, a couple weeks for that to dry out. <clears throat> but that's 4.7 miles at Lone Lake Park. And so that's um, right off like uh, 62 and Shady Oak Road or yep. Shady Lane Road or something like that. And then uh, up north, there's the Iron Range project where we built 84 miles of trail across a bunch of pit mines. And that stuff is all open to the public. And that's mostly bike trail. Um, 84 miles? Yeah. How long yeah. did that take? Uh, we're still going to be working on it next season. So four years between wow. five contractors, I think is what it got divided up amongst. Yeah. Um, and that's all bike optimized, mountain bike specific stuff, but it's, it's freaking cool trail. There's so much variety. It's yeah. So it's probably the ones I would say. Anything out, out, out the Midwest? Yeah, I would check out. Um, we worked on a chunk of the Continental Divide Trail from Togarty Pass to Sublet Pass. And it's like a four mile chunk, but 
that whole zone is beautiful. So go check it out. I mean, there's some pretty cool meadows and Alpine lakes and stuff that it cruises by. Um, that that's open for sure. And that's on the continental divide trail. That 84 mile section in Minnesota, is that straight or is that looped total 84 miles worth? Total 84 miles worth. It's across three different venues. So there's one in Grand Rapids, one in Chisholm, and then one at Giants Ridge. Okay. Yeah. I want you to I want you to share something, an idea that you shared with me. And I don't know if you're ready to talk about this or maybe like somewhat commit to this to people you don't know. Do you know where I'm going with this already? No, I don't. Maybe. I don't we know. can cut it out if you don't want. No, yeah. this is no, this is good. Um, Adam is an ambitious guy. Okay. Adam doesn't know how to rest. He doesn't know how to stop like with ideas and moving. He, he calls the stoke birds or chirping. That's your phrase, right? Yeah, stoke birds are chirping. <laughs> Adam stoke birds are always a chirping. And Adam got this idea to buy a ski hill. Yeah. Didn't you, Adam? I'm still looking at it. We're trying to figure it out. <laughs> a whole ski resort hill yeah. that I've run on on vacation. Which ski hill is it? Oh, we can't talk about that. I'm okay. not going to say that. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'll keep it out too. But I've run it. I've... Anyways, it's dope. Adam, what if you could buy this for the good people of the running public, what would you do with it? Yeah, I think I would turn it into a, like a, a trail facility. I, I think like for so like for obstacle racing, I think there needs to be like a permanent. I think you could build a super gnarly permanent obstacle course. But I think the problem is, is they're designed for one day use. And so I think if you work with actual trail builders, you could build a ridiculous all natural where like it's not plywood. It's actually like, let's go mill some lumber. Let's go move some rocks. Let's make an actual sustainable OCR course that's permanent. Not like, oh, cool, it's there for a day or two and it blows out a chunk of the woods. Let's make a permanent one. And I think you could make it incredibly challenging and sustainable at the same time. I think it'd be fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. This place is really good. It's got a ski hill, which is probably about 200, 250 feet of gain. Mm -hmm. And it's got backwoods, high, low lands. And uh, you, you mentioned that was kind of a dream of yours. Could we potentially one day be racing on an Adam Buck designed race course? Uh, we can get Spartan in to bring a Minnesota yeah. race back. I mean, this could happen, brother. It would be fucking awesome. I'd be in. <laughs> yeah. find, me, find me a place, you know? Yeah. Well, what are the chances that you would actually buy this place uh, potentially? Like, are we just dreaming or are we being for real? We're being for real. Yeah. Like, how, like how, like, give me a percentage of the chance that you might buy this place. Um, like here's the thing, 70, 70 to 80%, maybe. I mean, we're exploring options. There's a bigger picture to it. Cause it's like, yeah, because of the people involved, there's like a bigger picture to it for sure. But so, so if you buy this 70 to 80% chance by this ski hill, it comes with a bunch of land and acreage and you could build whatever. Will you build something on it? Absolutely. I wouldn't. Why, why own a ski hill if you don't build some cool trails? On it? Would you keep it skiable? Would this be a hill multi-use? Well, see, this is where I'm going to start being real polarizing with different users. My opinion in the Midwest, ski hills are like a dying thing. I mean, you can mountain bike or trail run in the Midwest almost nine months out of the year. So if you can figure out how to charge for that, there's no reason the facility shouldn't be able to be running nine months out of the year. So my thing would be to get rid of the snowboarding or skiing, you know? and make it a year round trail facility. So fat bikes, trail running, winter OCR, winter trail run events, summertime, like it's private property. You can do whatever you want. You don't have to and follow. That's, and that's, that's where I think we're missing the mark is we have, we don't have mountains, but we have really cool ski facilities that are yeah. dreams for biking and hiking and running. Mm -hmm. And most people because of 
closed-mindedness, insurance policies, or just their policy, mm-hmm. they don't let anyone on it when it's not snow season. Yeah, it's and a big part of that is an insurance thing and how mm-hmm. the states protect or don't protect private landowners. Right. So it's um, it would be cool to do, and it's a dream. It's in the pipeline. You know, we're trying to sort out how to fund it and how to figure it out. But yeah, we're working on it. That's cool. <laughs> well, the, well, the people heard it here first. If it happens, okay. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I'm just really biased and want you to do this, so I'm trying to like make you even more accountable to it yeah. by announcing well, it. You'll be pumped. I looked at a 40 acre farm last week where we were looking at the same thing. It's big enough and it had the terrain to do a private facility on it. But this someone guy, snatched it out from underneath me. I put an offer in and they got a better offer the same day. Why don't you can't just be stagnant in life, can you, Adam? You can no, never, you got to burn the candle at both ends. And this is where I want to transition. Okay. I led with the fact that um, you are a busy dude, hustling like crazy, working 70, 80 hour work weeks. And yet I'm still have, I still have you on a training plan. Mm hmm. It hasn't gone perfectly, has it, Adam? No, the last the last like what two months have been a real struggle. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Why have they been a struggle? Um, I fully blew myself out in July, like full on. And I, I know the exact project that like a work project. We so we donated a pump track facility to the city of Cottage Grove, and we moved 90 tons of asphalt by hand. And that's the that day is the workout where I I called you and I was like fuck it I'm over it <laughs> I need a break <laughs> yeah what lessons have you learned because there's a lot of people trying out listening trying to balance a lot of things in their lives I'm one of them right now I'm kind of spread thin you're spread thin half our listeners are managing kids and jobs and training and it's half the day they just are exhausted and mm-hmm. and that's the boat you've definitely felt in you felt you fell in the burnout boat didn't you. I don't know if it's burnout, but yeah, I guess. I don't know. What no, you're, you're, you're in denial if you're not going to call it burnout. <laughs> yeah. It was physical burnout. I mean, I was like, I wanted to run. I go for a run. I just felt like absolute garbage. I mean, um, I think people will always make time for what they care about, right? You got 24 hours in the day. Figure out how to use them most efficiently, you know? <laughs> that's the, that's, and I think that's where I caught myself out. I was trying to do too much in too short of a time, you know? <laughs> what are some of the lessons that you've learned from, because basically he went from smashing me in a hill workout to two weeks later and not being able to drag his butt on a four mile run without like getting through it. So obviously people deal with fatigue and they deal with burnout. I just yeah. want to know some of the lessons you learned by, by experiencing that. Are you still learning them? I think I'm still learning them a little bit. I think like I'm, I'm a pretty restless person. Like, I will push myself to the ends of the earth for the stuff I want to do. And so I'm learning that like, okay, if I don't run for a week, it's not the end of the world, you know, like, and that's been really hard to come to terms with. Cause I just, that's where I think that's where I like balance myself mentally is like out running or going for a bike ride or something. But sometimes you just need to like pump the brakes and chill for a minute. You know? And that's, I think that's where a lot of people struggle. I mean, running, it's kind of like, it's addictive, you know, it's, and it's good for you. It's like a good addiction. <laughs> There's nothing bad about it. And so I think it's just like learning to pump the brakes. And um, for me, luckily, my job keeps me active enough that I don't think I probably really lose a whole lot of fitness if I miss a run here and there, you know. Um, I may not be as like, I may not be on the point of the spear, but I'm right there, you know. <laughs> so Your life volume of training is as high as anyone's terms of time on feet and ability to just withstand hours of work yeah i think like when i blew out i started wearing my heart rate monitor and stuff to work and i i started recognizing that like on a average day for me i'll burn four or five thousand calories Dude, 
He was sending me, sorry to interrupt. He was, so I told you, I was wondering how much you were burning and how much yeah. you were eating. And we had that whole conversation. Yeah. And he wore his heart rate monitor to figure it out. And yeah, it was telling you your, I mean, your average heart rate was spiking during the day. You were burning 4,000 calories, then going and doing a quality workout after work at 7 p.m. before it gets dark and eating 2,500 calories a day. You yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, and maybe I'm a little bit hard headed and stupid about some of it. You know, <laughs> It's like if I ate an extra sandwich at lunch, I might feel better, you know, but I think, um, I enjoy movement and being busy. And I think sometimes you just forget to eat and stuff like that. You're just kind of like, Oh yeah, we just gotta get it done. I'll eat at five o'clock. Well, five o'clock rolls around. And for me, it's like, um, like when I fully blew out, it was like five o'clock would come around and that's when the volunteers show up. And as the contractor, you're managing them and interacting with all of them. And that's like seven o'clock. You're like, all right, sunset's an hour and a half. I got to go run for 90 minutes. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. You just forget to do things in there. So I think the thing, I've realized is I don't go anywhere without two water bottles now. And I carry a bunch of granola bars or candy bar in my backpack. And I've like made a point of trying to do that stuff better. I don't, I sleep like six, five, six hours a night. I just like, I don't sleep. It's just been a thing for forever. So I don't, um, I know that I'm always kind of burning the candle at both ends. That's kind of like a natural thing for me. (laughs) And you just crashes and you bounce back, you know? When you say you completely blew out, what do you what do you mean by that? Um, I think like how did you know you you tipped the scale too far? Yeah. I think I think that's important to to dive into. Yeah, so I think that workout that I blew out on was a 800 meter, I think it was 800 or 1200 meter doing um burpees, 20 burpees or 25 burpees or whatever between each interval. And I did like two of them and my time was so far off what it should have been. And it was like 95 degrees out and it was a cinder track. And I was just like, you know what? I need a rest. Like I just, I'm not, I couldn't do all the burpees and my time. I did one good one. And then the next two, my time fell off by like, not by like five, 10 seconds, which to me is like, okay, cool. I get it. I went hard. The first one, it fell off by like two or three minutes. And I was like, all right, fuck it. We're taking a break. I'm going home. I'm going to eat a sandwich and I'm just going to chill in the air conditioning. You know, And, um, I felt like there was something wrong with my body. I mean, that's that's how much that blowout was. But. Be more specific. Like day to day, did you notice a dip? Like for for like things people should look for. Oh yeah, I think I don't think it wasn't that I was motivated. My legs felt tired. Like, and I'd go for a run, and I just didn't feel like whole necessarily. You know, I felt like I was dragging. Like something was. I honestly felt like something was really wrong with me. And um, I think. I probably should have recognized that I was working in 90 degree weather, being super physical out in the sun. And to think that you're just going to flip from doing that for 10 hours a day and then go for a run to me is like probably where I made the mistake. You know? mm-hmm. and, um, and I think I probably should have been doing morning workouts when it's cooler out before I put in a 10 hour day. But um, yeah, I think I was just, I was tired. I couldn't eat enough food. I think is the other thing I noticed. I was constantly eating food and um yeah. Bracken, how how long do you think someone feels fatigued like that where it's pretty obvious that you need more than just a few recovery days? You need you need to pull the plug. Because that's what I recommended to you. I said, Adam, you shouldn't do anything. How, how long do you think, Bracken, should somebody be feeling that way before they just, like, it's obvious? And if you're training for performance, I still think my rule, I, I stick to three. If I get three days in a row where I'm supposed to have been recovered, and I take a recovery day and I, I need another one. If I hit three, 
I'm approaching burnout. For people who have life stress, I think you can absorb a week. Sometimes you just have like yeah. fighting with people or your work or life stress. It, it gives you more stress, but it kind of, it, it, it almost is fake fatigue where mm -hmm. you get through a week and then the next week's fine. But if you go an entire week with life stress and feeling crappy, like you're, you're there. Mm -hmm. And then what do you recommend? I recommend you pull the plug for seven to 10 days. Yeah. And then you take your sleep. minimum number that you've been feeling bad for. Yeah. I have three days in a row feeling crappy. I will not do anything for three more days. If you go a week, you need at least another week on the other side because things linger. And Kirk, you and I were just talking about this. I had my, my biggest week I've had last week since surgery and I felt good. I recovered really well at a muscular level and I've slept in three times this week. Like unable, unable to actually get rolling. One morning I got up and I was by 6.05, I was warmed up in the basement. And then I ended up just walking back upstairs and doing computer work because I was just so sluggish. And today I slept past 7.30 because I, I just couldn't, I couldn't move yet. And so there's this lingering fatigue that's deeper than just muscular fatigue that we don't always realize until you're trying to perform as well. I think a lot of normal people in the business world and real life live with this on a day-to-day -day basis for years, but because they're not trying to perform, they don't, they don't really understand the deep levels of it. They might be crabby all the time or snap at people and that's about the extent of it. But if you're trying to perform as well, that's when it hits you that this isn't sustainable anymore. And I, I think for me, I think the other thing too that I've been, that I struggle with is I, I don't really go out and do and I don't know, Kirk, if you watch, how closely you watch my Strava stuff or whatever, but I don't know, I don't know that I go out, like even on easy runs, I think I struggle with the idea of like dialing it back. You're not the best easy runner I've ever met. No. Yeah. So like my idea of like going and enjoying a run is like, well, let's go out and push ourselves a little bit, you know? And so I think I probably caught myself on that a little bit too, where it's like, I have to be able to ride and run the product we're building to test it. But I'm also doing that on top of well, cool. I'm going to go run 80 minutes at whatever pace. And then I'm going to come back and run five miles on the trails. We just built because I need to test them. And it's, um, I think that probably caught me out this summer as I was pretty motivated. Um, cause I'm training for the Mount Baker ultra and I'm, I want to come into that strong and able to like compete. Like, like last year, only 13 people finished that race. So I want to be able to come into that and be like, all right, cool. I can hang with these super gnarly dudes. <laughs> and so I look at training as from the standpoint of, well, you know, train like your race kind of thing, you know, which I know is probably the totally wrong way to look at it. But yeah, we'll keep talking. We'll keep working on that. Yeah, totally. And so like my mental thing is I really struggle with like dialing it back. I, I'm comfortable running at a quicker pace, but I know that that catches up with me every week that catches up with me. You know, I mean, that's not like if you have your quality days and stuff, but then your recovery run, if you do seven minute miles, well, that's not really a recovery run, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of like the whole thing where I think this summer between work and being out in the heat and hot, and then knowing that I kind of push myself probably harder than I should on often enough, that it just catches up with you, you know? <laughs> Hear that, people. Easy day's easy. Yeah, totally. And take totally. into account work stress and workload. And now, how have you been feeling in your training? Um, uh, well, we cut my load quite a bit like my training load. And um, 
even with that, I just with how busy we are at the end of the season, I've cut it a little bit harder. I'm just doing the quality days. I've been feeling the last couple of weeks. I've been feeling really, really good. I'm hitting some like solid paces and stuff again, which is nice, but it took a couple months. Well, and I know this and things have finally started to go well again because we took into account your workload. And I think a trap a lot of people fall into and Brack and you'll agree with this is we see what the best in sport, whatever, whatever your sport is, is doing for volume. And but they get to sleep in till eight o'clock and they get to take a nap after lunch and then they can go to bed at a decent time and they're not on their feet all day working a job. And so somebody like you and to my fault as your coach goes out and programs you like a professional athlete. Mm hmm not knowing how busy you were at the time. I've learned a lot since then, but like yeah. you have to take into account your life stress and your work stress and you're performing better now off of less volume mm -hmm. because you're not completely torched all the time. And I just think that that really needs to be taken into consideration when people are trying to decide how much time they should be putting in, in their own training. I would not model yourself after a professional athlete. I would not model yourself after Bracken or Brian Atkins or Ryan Kempson. I would, I would make it scalable so it's sustainable over time instead of crashing and burning and hating your life every day for weeks on end. And so I just think it's a really important lesson to learn that you have to pave your own path, pun intended, with your training based on your life. Yeah, totally. I, I think to add to that too, I think like don't get caught in that whole like Strava game either where you're watching everyone else's stuff and you're just like, well, God damn it, I need to be doing this because they're doing this and they're doing that. And I think a lot of it is like, be a little bit selfish with your training and pay attention to yourself. Don't be worried about what other people are doing. I think it's okay to like, hey, I don't need to share every workout. I don't need to be posting every little thing I'm doing. I think it's more so like, okay, this is an opportunity to focus on making sure I'm doing this right and not comparing yourself to everyone else that's out there. I think like it's um cool to be like, yeah, I did 100 miles this week, but if the next week you can't do that. What's the point? <laughs> you, know? so. you, you used it almost as a throwaway line earlier, but you said, yeah, it just catches up. But I think that's the most important takeaway is that everything catches up. Yeah. You can get really fit really quick. Yeah. You can get some really cool numbers really quick, but everything catches up. Recovery catches up to you too, in a good way. It catches yeah. up, you start clicking, but fatigue catches up and then you start blowing up. So we too often see a result and we do more of what got us there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's our tendency as humans. We're greedy and we're excitable and the stoke birds are chirping. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you have to let things stop catching up. Yeah, totally. I and my thing is that I like I before before I started working with you, Kirk, I haven't had a coach in 17 years or something like that. And so I, I saw improvement very, very quickly and I was super stoked. And so it was like one of those things you're kind of like, well, yeah, let's just keep charging. It's working. And I think I probably ignored some of your advice of like, hey, you should dial some of this back, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the other thing is if you have someone doing programming, you should maybe listen to them. They know more than you do, you know? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's two ways things stick. One, you just hear it enough from other people that it gets in your head, which is the least common way. And the other way is through your own trials and tribulations and learning the hard way. It just is. And, and people need to remind themselves and you need to remind yourself amongst everybody else and myself included. Like we go to this depositing money in the bank analogy that I use from time to time. And whether you're running a hundred miles that week or 20 miles that week, every run, every workout is still depositing money in a positive balance into your account. Mm -hmm. You don't always need to do more and more and more to get better results. It's not even really how it works. It's an accumulation of funds. So like 
just because you're backing off your volume to balance your life out at that point doesn't mean you're not going to get better anymore because you're not hitting the volume. You can absolutely get better on less mileage. I can show you a dozen examples of that, myself included. Mm -hmm. So like that pressure to do more, otherwise you won't be as good as you've ever been. And that's like a cyclical thing that is really harmful. Mm -hmm. Those still deposits are still being made and your funds are still accruing even at less volume. And so be patient, right? Yeah, totally. And I think like at the end of it all for me, I call it being adventure ready. I want to be able like, I'm not necessarily training for any particular, you know, before last year, I'd never even thought about doing a Spartan race or an obstacle race or a road run again. I was more interested in like, let's go take some peaks. Let's go, um, let's go train and let's take a stab at doing Denali or something. I was looking at like goals, much more like mountaineering based. And, um, my take, I think with running and fitness is more so been, I want to be in a space where I can go do whatever I want to do. And so I think I got derailed off that a little bit because I've signed up for some races and done some runs where I've been like, all right, cool, let's go win this thing, you know? And mm-hmm. instead of being like, hey, well, I'm in pretty good shape. Let's just stay in pretty good shape. And if the races go well, they go well. But if I can still go do the adventures I want to do and be healthy and not be the guy like holding back the group, well, then that's good too, you know? And so I think it's like kind of figuring out why you're doing what you're doing so that your headspace is in the right zone, you know? So it's not like, am I doing this because it makes me happy to do it or am I doing this just to win? I mean, cause that's two different things, you know? And I think that's a big driver for a lot of people is, you know, you get, you got to figure out why you're putting in all the work. And I think if you're in a good headspace, you can do some pretty incredible things, you know, you and Bracken kind of have the same philosophy right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you swing too far one way. You've got to get back to your core. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people miss the boat. I mean, like, if you love what you do, success will come. You just got to put in the time. So I think more people need to get back to the basics of like, I'm tying on my running shoes to go for a run, not to win a race a month from now. I mean, like that's the. Yeah. We, we had a conversation a, a couple months ago, Kirk and I did on this podcast. And we oftentimes talk about how we're talking about other people and we get an epiphany about ourselves. Mm-hmm. This one was that if you're having trouble getting out the door, and if you're having trouble being excited about your training, it's probably your goal is is what's not exciting. Mm-hmm. You have the wrong goal on the table. But when you have the right goal or the right mindset on the table, getting out the door is really easy. And that hit me afterwards. I just kept thinking about that. Like, I have been chasing the wrong goal. Mm-hmm. As soon as that switches, now it's not a chore to train. Now it's, can I get the rest of my stuff down done so I can get out and train? And, yeah. and you've adjusted your goal. I've adjusted my goal. We have people using the pandemic to readjust what actually, you know, sparks joy, what drives me in this life versus what was I chasing incorrectly. Yeah. And I think right now with like no races and like as a trail builder, my thing is like, go pick something adventurous, run across the Grand Canyon, go do a 14 or go do the incline, go run the, the Ice Age Trail or go run Spear Hiking Trail. And you don't have to set an FKT or something, just go do it for the adventure of doing it. And I think, like, I think um, what got me interested in competing in stuff again is I went and did the rim to rim, the rim to rim to rim without ever having run over 10 miles. And so it's like, we'll just go do it and see what happens. <laughs> I mean, sure, like, tell people what the rim to rim to rim is. Uh, running um, across the Grand Canyon and back. So it's, it's like down into the Grand Canyon, then through the Grand Canyon, up the other side of the Grand Canyon, then turning around and coming all the way back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
What happened on that? What happened on that? Did you almost die by chance? <laughs> I didn't almost die, but I definitely suffered. My nutrition got off and I ate like one Snickers bar and a pack of beef jerky. <laughs> That's a long day. And I don't think people truly understand the amount of vert yeah, that it yeah, takes to get out. from the bottom of the canyon back out. And you've got to get out twice on rim to rim to rim. That's a yeah. big day of climbing. Absolutely. But, but you know what, like in an adventure like that, you absolutely find yourself. There is no one in the world that doesn't find themselves trying to do something like that. So my thing is like, pick your Grand Canyon. There's so many options. It doesn't have to be a 50 mile run. I mean, everyone's hard is the same, right? Right. Hard is hard. So like, go do something cool. Do something that's do something that's not on a race course where you're bound by the race tape and medics and rules and all this stuff. Go do something that's like a real adventure. Like challenge yourself. No, you're not physically. Challenge yourself mentally. I mean, that's the rim to rim to rim is a much more of a mental challenge than a physical challenge, in my opinion. I mean, because you have to commit to doing it. There is no no one's gonna come to get you. So like don't pick something like that and go try and see what happens, you know? I mean, you can always turn around. <laughs> so, and what's our natural cycle as human beings? If we go chase after something fun, well, we suddenly realize that was fun. I'm going to do another slightly bigger one. And to do the bigger one, I need to be a little bit more prepared. And suddenly you find yourself getting into a different level of fitness. And then as soon as you're in that level of fitness, you want to go race. Yeah. So getting away from racing gets you back to racing, but in a different mindset to get there. It's, it's almost impossible to get really good at something and not want to go test yourself out on it. And so getting away gets you back. Yeah. And that's what happened to me. I did, I did, um, preparing for the rim to rim to rim. I did a bunch of winter peaks and stuff. And after I came back from that, I did, that's when I did my first Spartan race. Cause I was just kind of like, wow, no, I haven't tried it. Let's try it. You know, I ran 50 miles. I'm sure I can run five, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so it's like the whole thing where you just, you know, pick something where you can equate it in your brain. So it makes sense. Who cares? What was your first, what was your first race? Um, um, the last one at Welch village. Was that two years ago? I guess oh, that was, that was your. You took fifth there in your first Spartan race. Yeah, against like a field that is reputable. I was there, Mike Ferguson, Ian Caskey. That was yeah. your first race. Your first Spartan race. You took fifth place in a decent field. Yeah, and that's after I, I was in a car accident the week before, so my body was like bruised and battered. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. Tell the people, tell the people how fast you are, just so you know, because we do this on the podcast a good bit. I know we do. We say, watch out for this girl. Watch out for this guy. Like. You're one of those guys, like if you commit to this, if you want to be a good Spartan racer or a good trail runner, you will be even noticed on like a U.S. National Series. Like oh. you, you have the potential to be like a guy who could be in the mix. Maybe. So yeah. as a high school athlete who didn't pursue it afterwards, weren't you like a 420 miler and a 155 half miler? Yeah, around there. I think my fastest probably like like a 423 or 424 kind of. And then one one. 56, 57 and a half or something. So you're faster than Kirk and I in high school. I'm sorry? You're faster than Kirk and I in high school. I don't think so. Maybe. Yeah, yeah you were? Yeah. Cool. Why did you pursue running after high school? I burned out. And um, and I, I I walked on to you. I went to UMD for uh, two years and I walked on and I didn't like the coach the coaching program there. It was like, I, I prefer I prefer a more structured program and it was super unstructured and I just and then um, I was mountain bike racing at the time, and I got picked up by Red Bull and some other brands. <laughs> Just casually tossed it out there. You had a Red Bull sponsorship for mountain Dude, bike. This guy's a stud, and nobody knows it. <laughs> well, that's what's cool, you know, the dark horse. Um, 
so I did, so I kind of switched sports, got back into, um, got back into rock climbing and some more adventure based stuff. And so I dropped out of college to tra travel. I mean, I, cause I had like a travel budget. So I was spending my summers on the road riding and hanging out, you know, building trails. Red Bull, Red Bull doesn't just hand out sponsorships. Yeah. I wasn't like, to be pretty successful. Yeah. They have like, they have like levels. Right. So I wasn't, you see the guys with helmets. Those are like the top dogs. I was like a tier below that. Um, but it was cool. I mean, I've got my own Red Bull event. I, when I dropped out of college, I started a nonprofit and ran a race series for three years and I don't know, did some stuff. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of bike racing were you doing? Um, I started out doing cross country. Um, the way I got involved with Red Bull is I rode for like a free ride mountain bike film that was being produced locally out of Duluth and um, rode a bunch of lines that no one else would ride. And then um, I created this event. We did a bike race through the Skyway system of downtown St. Paul and when um, Red Bull was like the title without them it would have never happened so we literally crossed the metro area of St. Paul through the Skyway system which is like if you're not from St. Paul it's like a tunnel system on the second floor of all the businesses and so that's um it was indoor mountain biking yeah we did it in February yeah we did two years in a row 2006 and 2007 and um and that's where I got picked up by Red Bulls during all that stuff. And then uh, during that time, we started the Jolly Roger Downhill Series. And I, we hosted, we bought all the regional licenses and we sent people to nationals every year for downhill mountain biking. And the profits from the racing paid for us to build public downhill trails in the, in the parks around uh, Minnesota. And that was like 2008 to 2010 or something like that, 2011. Is that where you started your trail building? Yeah, I started my trail building in high school when I was 16. I got, I got caught by the U.S. Forest Service and got in a bunch of trouble. <laughs> yeah. You're a bootleg trail trail builder? Yeah, totally. Yeah. What were you trying to do? We were building, um, so I don't know I don't know how much you guys know about mountain biking, but there's like the free ride, they call it free ride mountain biking, the North Shore stunts are like big ladders up in the trees with big drops and wood features and stuff. We were, we were building that in a local popular deer hunting turkey hunting spot and we think some hunters told on us but the dnr was not too happy to see what, <laughs> to see what we were doing um and that was down near rochester is where we did all that but, did, you, yeah. did you get a bunch of fines or a slap on the wrist slap on the wrist and they actually introduced me to the international mountain bike association and that kind of led me down the path to getting like formal training and trail construction see that's how punishment should go right construction yeah. <laughs> well, you can't you can't punish a sixteen year old. What are they going to do? You know, <laughs> That's true. But I mean, they could throw fines at your parents, and then or yeah. or they they channeled you towards a good productive outcome. Yeah, yeah, that definitely led towards a good a good outcome. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So so when did you, when you got back to running, mm -hmm. did you find a love for it, or is biking and rock climbing, adventure racing, is that still kind of the love? Um, I think. The love that I'm finding is that I like the idea of adventure and running as a modality to adventure. Mm -hmm. So my body allows me to experience nature at a certain pace and running is that pace. And so if I can go run a hundred miles in a day, I'd rather do that than take 10 days to do a hundred miles. So yeah. uh, I use it as a point of access, you know, like I can go check out cool zones. I can do it pretty fast. And if there's a race here and there, heck yeah, that's fun. You know, so you've got 420 low mile speed combined with a ultra adventure 
spirit to it. That, that's not yeah. a bad setup for entering the trail game. Yeah. So I'm the race I'm training for right now. I spent, um, I was supposed to do an ultra this spring, but with the pandemic, it's just outside of Seattle and Seattle is obviously hit pretty terribly by all this stuff. And so it got delayed to next year. Um, but this last year I did a session in February up on Mount Rainier to do some mountain training. Um, then we did uh, a solo run up Mount Whitney in the first week of January. And then I did the rim to rim to rim. And then I was supposed to do this ultra that has like glacial crossing and you have to run with ropes and gear and 50 miles or 55 miles or something like that. I actually don't even know how long it is, but it's going to be a, it's the whole last year was spent building up to this. And that's where um, I got involved with Kirk and training and stuff was trying to like gear up for it. Um, and so it's been weird trying to like reset the goal after having done all that travel and training for something that got delayed, you know? So we're kind of like back, back to the drawing board, but mm -hmm. um, that's what got me back into running probably two years ago. Is like, all right, we're going to do the grand Canyon. Cause that's been a goal for a really long time. And it's like, um, if you, if you've never been, it is one of the coolest places on planet earth. There's just no way to describe it. Like it's it essentially just a big ditch, but it's just absolutely incredible how big it is. And it makes you feel so insignificant. That if, if you can go, go. I mean, it's a cool place. And so that was a really big goal. And then once I did that, that qualified me for the, the Mount Baker Ultra. Um, and so then I started being like, well, hey, I need to start running. So I started doing lots of 14ers and stuff in the wintertime just because this race has six miles of glacial travel. So my thing is like, well, if I can run to the top of Mount Whitney in January, I could probably run up a glacier, you know? So we just started like mixing things in there and um, none of that was organized. That's before I'd even, I think before I'd even met Kurt. And so, so yeah, the Mount Baker Ultra is the, uh, the carrot dangling for you now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's and when is that race scheduled? May. May, let's hope it happens. I hope so, May, June, it's gonna be, yeah. Yeah, so we're just, we're gearing up, getting ready to get after it, I guess. Once you're done with work. Yeah, we got two weeks left, I think, and then it's time to get going. <laughs> um, what are your goals this next season? Where can maybe people look for you? His name's Adam Buck. You can't miss that one. Kind of stands out in like a list of names, I feel like. What uh, What are you looking at other than uh, Mount Baker's, what, 60 miles, you said? Yeah. Facial travel. 55. Said you want to win it? Yeah, oh, man, we're just throwing the claim. Yeah, I would love to come in and be competitive. If I could get in the top three or something, I'd be – I'd be extremely happy. So you're gonna um, win. So you're gonna win that. And what else are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, I would love to. I was eyeballing the Mount Spartan Mountain Series this last summer, and um, that obviously all got canceled because um, I've had. I don't know if I'm just having beginner's luck, but the like two or three of them I've done, I've done okay at. So um, thought process of jumping into those because they seem like they're pretty cool, cool locations, and it's like a little bit different racing style. Um, other than that, I. I have some dreams of doing like a run on the 14ers in Colorado, some kind of do all of them in a certain amount of time kind of deal. Um, I'm really keen on running some parts of the Continental Divide Trail, um, looking at some FKTs and some flat canyons and like the Vermilion, Vermilion Cliffs area. Um, yeah. And lots of riding and just getting out there and having fun. You know? Not too many goals, you know? <laughs> yeah. I sense overtraining going to be a topic that comes up again in the future. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, you'll make moving the puzzle pieces tricky for me, which will be fun. Um, 
Where, uh, Bracken, what are the questions you got for this man here? Man, I don't even know where to go with this. This this could be one of those five-hour episodes for me. Yeah, ask away, man. <laughs> Would you consider going into more of, I mean, do you think it's sustainable for Spartan or a race like that to do more of the permanent course location, like a Blue Mountain or a uh, their tri-state area or Bre- Breckenridge or uh, Breckenridge you couldn't, but... Um, Big Bear, places where they return year after year after year. Do you think it makes sense to get into and for mountain and sky running as well? More mm-hmm. partnership with trail builders so that it's a sustainable course rather than we put 10,000 people through in a weekend and then it's totally washed out and it's a mud bath and it's out, it's unusable. There's these trails that are set permanently afterwards, yeah. but half of them are unusable for three quarters of the year. Is that something that you would be interested in doing? Yeah, I think. So I worked for Red Bull for a bunch of years doing event production. Mm-hmm. And um, like I was involved with Crash Dice and some other things like that. And I think like if you're going to grow the sport, there needs to be a point where there are permanent facilities that people can come and try not under a race setting. Like you can't like I have a bunch of friends that they think Spartan racing is, oh, yeah, it's cool. Kind of seems, you know, like people look at it, it's kind of like a outlier sport, you know, which I think mm-hmm. is really cool. But I think at the same time to mainstream it people have to be able to try it. I mean, like you can't, you can't expect people to pay the 250 bucks or whatever, and then have a terrible experience. They need to go somewhere where they can try it in a controlled setting. Um, like Kirk up by you, there's a city park getting put in. That's going to have Spartan style. Have you seen that? I've heard about it. They did a little blip on a morning news show. There was yeah. a segment and they, well, yeah, uh, I heard about it. I don't know the details though. Yeah. It looks pretty cool. It's going to have like 13 features or something, but um, the, so my take is like, yeah, absolutely. Permanent facilities are the way to go. And I think like, you, obviously not all of them can be permanent, but if they really want to turn this into someday it's an Olympic sport or something, you're absolutely going to have to have permanent courses. I mean, like you can't just, you can't not have them, you know? I mean, that's like for the growth trajectory of the sport, they need to have permanent facilities. And I think the trail aspect of Spartan racing is super cool, but I think it could be included into nature so much better where the setting, it becomes an experience. It's not just like, oh, I'm running up a ski hill. Why the hell are you running up a ski hill? That's not that exciting. Let's go put it over in the woods on the edge of the ski hill and let's leave it permanently. So like, gosh, you know, I might be doing a Breckenridge course. There's somewhere near the Midwest that I can go train a Spartan course on hilly terrain. And I don't, exactly. think, I don't think it's outlandish to think that they could get permission to do that. I don't I either. Think- it's they're a commercial entity and so it's a little bit you start blurring lines right because they need to make money i mean they have to be able to operate and so i think it's how do you create a course that's permanent any trail builder would be like hell yeah let's do it just because it'd be cool and something new you know well you look at the iconic courses throughout the trail running so you have what sierra's and all you have utmb you have western states people can go access and run these segments and the Strava portions and train on it and see how they stack up compared to people who have done it. And then you have the the year-to-year historical record of this is the greatest performance we've ever seen or this year's weather, this person did this, which is still top four all time despite being 98 degrees. And the one thing we cannot do ever in Spartan or OCR racing, which most trail and mountain and road and track can do, is compare times and performances. We can look at winner's time gap on the rest of the field, and we yep. can look at depth of field, but we can't perf- compare actual time-based performances. And that would 
that would be a ticket towards a real sport is being able to have a historical record because there's no other sport on the planet that does not compare performances year to year. Yeah. And you're, and you're talking consistency and the only way to have consistency is in the course. Right. And I think like, the other thing with the courses too, is I think if you work with a trail builder, I mean, what if you guys, what if there was a sustainable climb that was almost like a ski ramp that ended in climbing? I mean, like the, if you start talking to people that build trails and tell them what it's for, I think you could actually progress the type of course to the point where it's like, holy shit, that's gnarly. And it's not like, it's not the same 13 features or 14 features or 20 features. It's this course has this iconic thing that it's known for, but it's permanently there, you know? And I think that's where it becomes more of an experience. You know, it's like, it's, like when we build trails, you're looking for providing a unique experience for the location you're at. You can do that with any kind of race course if it's a permanent thing that mm-hmm. you're not setting up every year. So I think like, I mean, yeah, Spartan, reach out. We'd be stoked to talk with you. you know? <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you explain funding for something like that when they're you know pretty good at pinching the penny? Yeah, but Spartan also sells. Hey, Spartan spend some money, goddammit. it! <laughs> <laughs> they sell SGX certification. They they're now selling DecaFit certification. They're selling all these things. Now they have a permanent location where they can sell the ability to come out and train on this and certify the Palmerton course specialist. And we can come out here and lead running camps and de- it, 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 it can be a moneymaker or and they can even be semi-permanent. You could have half of the course scripted out with climbs that stay there. And then the connectors are year by year, but. Well, I, I think to that end, you the way they sell it in cities are looking for programming for their rec programs. And so it's taking it a step further. It's like high school seeing growth right now with mountain biking, because now there's a high school league, which started as clubs, but in Minnesota, there's 3000 high school cyclists. Now, three years ago, there were zero. And so I think it's, if you, you need to, if you create the programming, there's a reason to have the facility. So I mean, you got to build a couple of them first, but once you have them, and I, this sounds terrible to say because it takes the creativity out of it, but you could cookie cutter to some degree. It's like, okay, we know we can safely do these features permanently. We know we can, and there's certain things that you see on a Spartan course. You're like, oh yeah, well, what the hell? Why isn't this everywhere? You know? And so I think that that is probably a place to look is like, okay, well, if we have a recreation program with the city of Minneapolis and we have a Spartan course. Well, there'll be a club popped up around it within a year and there'll be kids out there crushing out Spartan courses. And maybe it's not just kids. Maybe it's, you know, I mean, the, the other side, it's like developing the pipeline. Right. I mean, like mm-hmm. that's why soccer is so successful. You start when you're six and you, you have all the way up to the mega pros that there are now, you know, and so like you got to create the pipeline. And I think if you have the pipeline, well, then you have to have the facilities. But um, a permanent course would be badass. That'd be super cool to do. Yeah. It would help U.S. mountain running as well because we don't have structured mountain running anywhere outside of, you know, Rockies, Appalachian, mountain mountain running though. That's the only, but I mean, you can simulate mountain running on our ski hills. Yeah, absolutely. You're not even allowed on them right now. Most of the time. Yeah. The Midwest, my opinion of the Midwest ski resorts, I gotta be careful because we do business with a lot of them, but I don't think they use their facilities to the maximum potential. And I know there's other things involved besides me being like, well, I want to ride my bike down your hill or I want to run up your hill. I get that there's like insurance and all that stuff, but there's a ways around that's shouldn't be a no. That should be, Hey, this is an opportunity to improve. So like, let's figure out how to make it work. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think they'd have to work around. I mean, Spartan. If we're just talking Spartan in particular, they'd have to work around the fact that they're borrowing other people's facilities to race at, and there's other transactions happening there. So having to find the right facilities where it's theirs or they have the freedom to put something permanent there would be the trick. But the model makes sense, man. It really does. It's the build it and they will come model, yeah. which I believe in this sport would actually probably work. With Ninja Warrior been super trending already. You can kind of pull that crowd. You can pull the CrossFit crowd. You can pull the runner crowd. You can pull the gym crowd. People are going to want to try something like that out. Like that's why we are all in this sport, right? We found it coming from one of those other avenues. So um, I really like that concept. It's like we need Steve Hammond to listen to this episode. Steve, I know you're listening, Steve. You listen to these. I know you do. You need to reach out to Adam Buck and you guys need to start chatting and scheming and figuring this out. And And here's the crazy thing is it doesn't have to be at a ski hill. I mean, Afton Alps has the train. That's a state park. I mean, that's owned by the state. Our tax dollars pay for that. So it's kind of like, if that's not something they offer, I mean, they're they're there to create recreation opportunities for people, for public use. I mean, I think the public-private partnership with Spartan and some public entities would probably be better than ski hills because in the Midwest, ski hills are strapped. I mean, they don't have, they're barely making enough money to survive to ask them to put in a permanent thing like you don't know who's going to pay for it but if you go with the state there's grants there's programming there's also other stuff they can do, do besides just a ski hill you know so it's um the the play on that might be more going after public public a public space rather than a private facility you had the right idea as a 16 year old in the woods breaking the law yeah <laughs> if you build it they will come <laughs> they did and who came was the police the police came as who came <laughs> well a mini example of that is over where i did my hill workout last week where we spent four hours to get five thousand feet of vert in wisconsin but it's a yeah. it's a it's a mini little ski park and there's one hill off to the side it's their tallest steepest and it was unusable for them and it always just sat there. They maintained it, but they didn't do anything with it. And that's where I'd sneak on and run. And I got booted off all the time. What, what hill? It. Uh, it's called The Rock in Whitman. Yeah, I know The Rock for sure. Okay. They used to have a bike park. <laughs> yeah, they still they still do to some extent, okay, but not cool. like they used to. Anyways, that that's where I got booted off. I'd show up at 5 a.m. or at 10 p.m. and do it by moonlight in winter because that was the best place I could get vert in my area. So I live about six miles from there. That's a garbage pile. You know that, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. That's an old dump. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Used to be called Crystal Ridge. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's hilarious, man. Cool. That's what? Your, what is that, all of 120 feet or something? No, like that? 194. 94. 194. 194. 194. Higher than Buck Hill. So not terrible. So we, I moved out to Colorado. I come back and I show up one day and there's a sign that says, be aware that all, all activities are recorded and respect the hill. And so sometime throughout this time, they started allowing people on it. And I have not been there now without seeing at least 10 to 15 other people. And this is the middle of probably one of the least physically active parts of our state. So if you, they just simply, they don't even advertise it. They just allowed people on it now. And they probably get a hundred different people over the course of every single weekend. Mm-hmm. And isn't that a, at a little garbage pile of a hill in yeah. the middle of nowhere, you know? <laughs> That's the welcome to the Midwest, you know? <laughs> right. But people will seek it out. People just show up and they hike. And some of the people are who are hiking to be able to go out and do excursion hunting. And some people are hiking for health or because they don't have a treadmill. And some people are prepping for uh, a Ragnar. But it's just everyone is looking for a place, especially in this time, to be outside and active. 
I, and I think like Highland Hill is probably a good example here where it's not like, it's not totally kosher to be on the ski hill, but they don't stop it. They have like signs up where it says, Hey, don't use this one because all the grass is dying or, or whatever, you know? Um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think like the craziest thing that has happened this year with the pandemic for us as Pathfinder has been every place we stop, they're asking for every place we're working. They're asking to add stuff on because the capacity is not there to be socially distanced on the trails and the parks are just getting slammed. I mean, I've never seen Afton Alps so busy ever on the, on the weekends. It's one car in one car out parking, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's a good problem to have for you. Yeah. It's good, good for job security. <laughs> so, so we're, we're reaching the two hour mark here. So I think we're, we're about to wrap this thing up, Adam. Um, why don't you just tell people, I don't, I don't know if we specifically said the name of your company, uh, where people can follow along with you, uh, all that stuff. Yeah, if you want to check out our builds, it's Pathfinder Trail Building. And on Instagram, the best place, just Pathfinder Trails. What's your personal handle? Is that it? Yeah, my personal hand. No, my personal handle is Big Boss Buck. Big Boss Buck. Yeah. And you post, you post some good stuff about like the process of trail building and stuff. And I encourage, mm-hmm. go, go shoot Big Boss Buck a message saying thank you, folks. <laughs> so it's not a thankless job anymore. <laughs> yeah. Adam, thanks for coming on. This is this is insightful, and I'll never look at a trail again the same way, ever. Yeah, and I would tell everyone out there if you if you pass someone working on the trails, toss them a high five; they'll be stoked. All right. Yeah, you bet, guys. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.